0: This is channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White
1: Ladies. Um, I'm thinking about different rubrics that we set up, or if you are looking to learn more about students, like, are they sharing their stories? Are you exploiting their stories? Yeah, along those lines. And then also, mm-hmm. like, yeah, who makes up selection committees? And how much, like, are they racist? Or how yeah. much do they know about, like, the current lay of the land and the student experience?
0: Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. One, two, 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 interchangeable. white ladies.
2: Interchangeable. Interchangeable. White Ladies! Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Megan. Today's essential question is what are the unique challenges of BIPOC students in post secondary education, and how can these institutions begin to dismantle their oppressive systems and histories in order to create a more inclusive and accessible community for these students? No, we are not having this
3: conversation alone, but we have an awesome guest with us. We do. We are excited to be joined by the badass, powerful, and fellow hashtag dog mom, Katie Wallace, today. Uh, Katie is an educator living and working in Seattle. She's Korean American, adopted, and grew up in a multiracial family. After eight years teaching high school Spanish in Central and South Seattle, she transitioned out of the classroom and into higher education. She now leads a paid internship program for undergrads working with nonprofit and public sector organizations. So, thanks for um, being here, Katie.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited, excited to join you.
3: We're excited to have you here. Um, and so, just right off the bat, um, is there anything outside of your bio, so the bio that I just read, that listeners should know about you to set the context for this conversation or the perspective that you maybe specifically bring to this conversation?
1: Yeah, let's see. So something that I think listeners should know um, is that it might be obvious, but as an adopted Korean American woman, I um, grew up with people who didn't look like me. Mm -hmm. um, And I grew up not wanting to identify as a person of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I went to the University of Oregon. I started college in 2003. And at that point, Oregon was—they uh, said 13% non-white—and that was not mm-hmm. only BIPOC students but also um, international students. <laughs> and so, I, wow, yeah. Sorry, I just—I don't know
2: why that caught me. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a whole lot of white people. <laughs> I mean, even for international yeah. students, I guess when you added that yeah, part, because also- I'm like, well, maybe some more. No
3: yeah no it was it was a whole lot of white people uh and that that it's like University of Oregon it's a whole lot of white people at a university and a whole lot of white people community (laughs) (laughs) yes in that in the city of Eugene in that glorious state
1: yes all things true um -hmm. so having grown up always feeling like the other when the Office of Multicultural Affairs, or I don't even remember what it's called at that point, was reaching out to me constantly. I was like, "No, thank you. I would rather not be labeled as the other again and mm-hmm. again." I thought I got out of that, but then I was just like back yeah. yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah, um, and so that's ringing true now um, in my adulthood. That in my thirties, finding power in being a person of color, it's a, it's totally different. Like, what if I would have had that feeling when I was growing up, or when I was a teenager, or when I was in college? Hmm.
2: What caused that shift for you? Is there a moment or a series of moment that helped you kind of wrestle with that or come to this point?
1: Yes. Um, so I always had a desire to be around more people who looked like me Mir- or people who were not white. Um, and I remember, so I taught at several different high schools, but specifically at Cleveland High School in Beacon Hill. Mm. I remember oh. the first assembly. And I just looked out at the sea of like at least a thousand students. And I was like, I swear to God, maybe like 15 of them are white. And every other student is, is a student of color, or black or indigenous. Mm-hmm. And I was just blown away. And mm-hmm. the power in that of like, oh, this is, this is it. This is where I belong. This is where I feel at home. And just the connections I had with my students instantaneously, because they're not used to having a teacher who's not white in the classroom. Yeah. That was a really big deal. Mm-hmm.
2: I want to, can I add a little bit to that? What do you, yeah. what would you um, say are some of the things that you brought then to the classroom as a teacher of color for these students?
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that we're just able to relate in a different way. Like there's something mm-hmm. about like, I definitely don't like, I'm also on top black. So I'm not saying that mm-hmm. all of our experiences are like, um, but I think that we know that it's a different experience moving about the world. Um, or that, um, I don't know, there's just some questions that just you don't have to ask. And some uh, some things you don't have to dance around. Um, and there's something powerful about that. And it looks different with every relationship. But, yeah, that's something that stands out for me.
2: Yeah, uh, appreciate that. We've talked a fair amount about that kind of concept on the show. But I always think it's important for listeners who, based on our small demographic demographic data are mostly white if not 99.9 no um uh so I think it's always important for us to remember that and kind of think about what does that mean for representation and why representation matters so much mm-hmm. um so
3: I guess what caused you or Megan you want to hop in do you have another question oh I was I was actually just going where you were about to yeah go. so so you're talking about how you were um teaching in the high school and you said it was for eight years, you were there. What kind of caused you then to say, I am ready to kind of transition Mm -hmm. away from that and into the higher education space?
1: Yeah, a couple things. So um, one, I I love working with young adults, but I also knew I wasn't a lifer in the classroom. And um, the longer I was Mm -hmm. there, I realized the parts I enjoyed the most were community circles and conversations um, about identity and power and things that were going on in the community or in the world. Um, and yes, I loved teaching Spanish, but uh, the most enriching part was just authentic dialogue with students. So that was one thing of thinking that like, okay, I think my time in the classroom is done. There's other ways to work with young adults. So that was one piece. And then the other bit is obviously it's so important to get, um, you know, support students and get them to, you know, support them in graduating from high school. But my concern was great. Once you get to college, like that's a, that's huge. But then when you get there and the people on campus don't look like you and you don't feel supported and you don't see your Uh community represented, like then what? So I was really worried about um, next steps. And like, are we setting our students up to be successful? So then I started getting curious about the retention and
3: yeah. Right. And so talking and I I think that that's the perfect kind of segue into what we're hoping to spend like a bulk of this episode really talking about. Um, Can you kind of share with the listeners a bit more about the work that you're doing right now in that space?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I'm working with a community based internship program. Mm -hmm. And so it's about 32 undergraduate students from all majors, all different academic years who are working in public and nonprofit organizations. Um, And one of the things I love about it most is the fact that it's paid, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, a lot of students love to volunteer and work with nonprofits, but most students wouldn't get paid for that work. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's a really important piece. The other part is that we have weekly cohort meetings, and this is where we get to dig into these different topics around power and privilege and mm. racism, anti-racism, allyship, etc. Um, and just that mix of students from all these different majors, all these different identities, getting to share space um, in a place that, like, yes, we're meeting on campus, but it's not an academic space in the sense they're not getting graded, they're not getting evaluated, and then the conversations are led by typically graduate students, again, who look like them and have similar experiences. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, your point about paid really reminds me of, um, I don't know if either of you have read Sarah Kenzior's work, Um, View from Flyover Country was her first book. And then, oh my gosh, I can't remember the one I just read, her second book, which is amazing. But she goes hard about paid internships and and the fact that so many internships are unpaid and how that really sets up this like class divide and just like all the, the crap around that. And just this notion of like, oh, you're doing it for the good of whatever, but you have to have so much privilege and money and access already to then go into those places okay. to be able to afford an unpaid unpaid yeah. internship in New York or like wherever, you know. Well,
3: and it's crazy. So my program um, that I graduated from at Western for undergraduate school the last um like two years I had to it was a requirement of my program to have internships it was a non-profit and so by the time I graduated it was a requirement for us to have been in four placements but I was also working and going to college and then also required to have these internships that were unpaid and so it was just it the yeah, the privilege of not also having to work to make money, right? Like having the resources. Exactly. Um, so I think it's like the paid internship part is I think a really powerful, unique um, part of what you're kind of doing. Um, I would love to go back to something that you said yeah, so for why. That so for why you left the high school classroom, and you said focusing on retention. Um, right. So like the retention. Yeah. Um, I think that a lot of people are like, but more and more students of color, more and more BIPOC students are enrolling in post-secondary education, mm-hmm. right? We're doing the work. It's happening. It's, you know, it's, we're done. Um, what, what were you seeing was happening that caused you to like be concerned? Gosh, I think once students get to campus, like I
1: was saying, they literally don't see people who look yeah. like them, mm-hmm. um, especially if they're in a STEM major, right? That yeah. is often a place where um, you feel the lack of representation. But when you're walking around campus with a bunch of um, a bunch of white students, there's stu- like yeah. you just don't that sense of home isn't there, and it's um, and often this campus I'm referring to is very large um, but a lot of the schools they're just way more than uh, a bigger student body than anything that a student has experienced before and then you head into this lecture hall of a few hundred people and it feels like everyone else just knows what to do right yeah Uh and you and when you are like when you're the minority in a room it's really intimidating and then the other piece is like who's teaching these classes And like, Mm -hmm. can you actually relate to the person standing up in the front of the room or standing behind a podium? Yeah.
3: Mm -hmm. I think a really, as I was kind of doing some research for this episode, I think a really um, interesting statistic that I came across was that about 75% of full-time staff on college campuses are white, right? And so as there's this shift to where more BIPOC students are enrolling in universities, the shift for staff and faculty is a much slower shift that's happening. Right. And so these students of color are walking onto a campus, like you said, and like the faculty and the adults Mm -hmm. that they are engaging with and interacting with, are not shifting. Um, And, and, like a powerful quote from it, the article I was reading said students were more likely to encounter people of color in service roles than in faculty or leadership positions. So even of the 25% of staff and faculty that are um, on universities, it's very rare for students to have that staff as le- in leadership positions, right? As yeah. um, as professors or departments or things like that.
1: Yeah, I think that's right on. It's so unfortunate, but it's definitely true. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah, really. What you're talking about reminds me, I was kind of flashing back to, I did undergrad at Biola University in California, which for a variety of reasons is already extremely white. Um, and then also like the data and all that stuff, um, as we're talking about, but um, I had a lot of international friends um, that were people of color from around the world and that was like always something we, we would sit around and talk about right so folks who look more like them were you know in service jobs and there's nothing wrong with service jobs as we know but yeah. like what does that say about the infrastructure of a school what does that say about the hiring policies of that school what does that say mm-hmm. about you know just the way that we look for um, diverse thinking and thought that that can come from you know different pulling people from different communities right in the same place mm-hmm. um, just flash back to 2003 <laughs> there. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Yes. So, so in your work now, I mean, is your program is that are, are I guess I have a couple questions. One is it, how do students get involved in into the kind of program that you offer? And then two, um, is this program something that is like, are you guys pioneering this work in terms of universities as a whole? Are more schools looking at doing this work or is it something that's a little bit more unique?
1: Great questions. Um, So for the first one, in terms of how we get the information out there, um, I think a lot of, I would say a lot of the outreach we do is through advisors. Um, It's offered to all students. I would say some of the relationships are strongest in certain departments, say like public health, law, society, and justice, um, education, um, social work. Um, In some departments, there's some stronger alignment, but definitely through our mouth. And then we're working to connect more and more with organizations that serve students of color, like the ECC, the Ethnic Cultural Center, um, oh, yeah. different multicultural groups and student groups, for sure. Um, and a lot of it is just the relationships that students have with each other in, in those groups. And then That's the awesome second see- question, oh, around our other people, our other yeah. organization, uh, universities yep. doing this, yeah. And so my gut would be yes. I don't know about the paid part though. Like community engaged mm. learning or service learning is really common around universities, and I think more and more fellowships are popping up. But I don't know that the paid internship model is broad, and I worry about even if it mm. is on the rise, what's going to happen now during, um, during after COVID.
2: Mm -hmm. hey oh so that's a nice transition to talking a bit about COVID,
1: we hadn't talked about that yet like oh yeah yeah
2: go ahead Megan transition (laughs) I I know you got COVID questions ready to go
3: is um I I think the conversation of like how how do we anticipate Mm. COVID and this new normal and virtual learning to impact the experience of BIPOC students on a, a college campus right like what what kind of things have your, have you and your coworkers been having um, around that?
1: Gosh. (laughs) Um, I mean,
2: a lot of things I assume.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so many things. So, I mean, there are of course conversations around uh, just access and resources and and financials. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm also thinking about in terms of retention, like even how do we build community first, who is Coming back, who can still pay for college? Great. And also, in different families or for different students, like when you're weighing all of these different priorities, where does college fall now? Yeah. And thinking about the college experience and tuition, and that you're still paying, and consider of out-of-state tuition to log into Zoom. Um, yeah, it's really putting into question like what is a college <laughs> education right now? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Oh. yeah. I, so there's I, a lot of different things going on.
3: Yeah, I, you bring up the like can't who can afford college, right? And it's um, just like the difference between BIPOC students and specifically like black students versus white students in terms of how much money they take out in loans is significantly different, right? It's in and, and, like just all of that, the layers and how COVID brings different layers to that of how finances for families have been mm-hmm. impacted and um, the not only like, can you afford college, but can we afford to have a potential um, money earner not be earning money for our family right now? Right. Like gone right, yeah. to rely on an income and by going off to college, all of a sudden that income is gone for the family as well. Right. And there's like all of these different layers that happen, that create a really inequitable inequitable access to the completion of college. Hmm.
1: Yeah. And I guess I'm also thinking about generational wealth in which schemes, which families can lean into savings or think about long-term versus Uh um, a lot of folks thinking about like what happens today, what happens next week, let alone like what happens in a few years.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, it makes me think, um, I have a number of colleagues here in the UAE who have had seniors this year and they took them back to the States to go to college or Canada. Um, and just like the conversation, it's very stressful for them to leave their kid behind, um, in the COVID world. Um, but also I I think about the difference, just money is always a stress for people, but like what, what you can tap into, as you pointed out, right. The generational wealth that's there. um, I don't know how you guys feel about this. Like Nate and I both were coaching some high school kids, not necessarily at our school here, but back in the States, um, just around if you're going to go online anyway, like what is the best affordable option for you? And I mean, we have Washington state. We're so lucky with amazing community colleges. Um, and so, just like, is that a better option? Because can you, you know, like the scheduling, the combination of finances, and like you were saying, if the if kids need to work, if people need to work for the rest of their families, um, what are your thoughts on that? Either of you? <laughs> That's
1: a great question. You're um, so quiet. <laughs> I do wonder about the online programs. I mean, the like online universities where the people who work for them actually trade in online education. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think at this point, like, is this, are we allowed to say this? But like, I would definitely think a lot of those universities are way better set up to support students and at a way yeah. lower cost.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know it's, it's this interesting thing. Like, um, I've had that conversation with students as well of even pre COVID, right? Well, how do you, um, Get the most for your money, right? It's like mm-hmm. you, we're like really thinking about what. What do you want your college experience to look like? How much money is it going to cost? Um, and even now, it's like it, online, is on. It's online. Like, what are you paying for? Like at a university in terms of tuition. Like, what are you? And then, are you going to get all of those things if it's all virtual? Right. So, like, can you justify mm-hmm. paying that significantly higher tuition? to a university when you could get essentially the same thing from and pay a much less money. Um, Did you say
2: a much less money?
3: (laughs) I said, uh, and then much. I
2: was like, yes, I agree with you. It was a much less money.
3: A much less. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I guess. So I, I guess my, my next question though is then, so we talked a bit about what, like some of the struggles of BIPOC students on college universities is right and like I guess we didn't really nail it down of so all of these challenges on a university for um, these students of color causes a much higher dropout rate versus white students mm. right so maybe they're enrolling at a higher rate but completion um and getting the actual degree is lower and like we kind of yeah. talked a bit about um, why that is, right. We talked about like now finances, which COVID is only exacerbating. Mm -hmm. We talked about, you know, interacting with predominantly white faculty, which causes, you know, like that systemic racism and having to interact with racism Mm -hmm. on a daily basis, like microaggressions on a daily basis is exhausting. Um, and we've talked about these things, right? Like we, there and there's many there's many other challenges that students of color face on a university's campus um so then what is the responsibility of the universities like what can universities do to try and fix this and I think we talked a bit about this with Katie your your program and kind of what you're doing um but what what else is the responsibility of the universities to try and remedy this
1: Mm, I love this question. Um, it's great because I'm thinking about it constantly, and it's really hard. <laughs> um, but there are yeah. things that universities can do. So, something I've been thinking about is just like who who are you centering? Like who mm-hmm. are you centering in the classroom? Who are you centering when you set a schedule? Um, who are you centering it with um, scholarships? Who's sitting on your scholarship committees? I think there's a whole bunch of different things that we actually can do in different practices. We can set. Um, I've been thinking a lot about selection committees. So whether Mm, it's like mm -hmm. filling an internship role or whether it's a scholarship, because there's a lot of rich people in Seattle who are looking to give their money away. (laughs) Um, So the resources are there. (laughs) How are you distributing those resources? Um, I Mm -hmm. think that's something important to consider. Like what kind of hoops are students having to jump through? What are you actually looking for? And how are you communicating that? Um, I'm thinking about different rubrics that we set up or if you are looking to learn more about students, like, are they sharing their stories? Are you exploiting their stories? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, along those lines. And then also, mm-hmm. like, yeah, who makes up the selection committees? And how much, like, are they racist? Or how yeah. much do they know about, like, the current in of the land and the student experience?
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a bit more? You said exploiting their stories. Can you speak a bit more about, like, what you mean by that and what that maybe looks like at the university level
1: yeah so I think often students of color BIPOC students um like I mean we all we all have varied experiences and oftentimes those students have just experienced trauma right different forms of trauma throughout their entire lives and so many times <laughs> scholarships um scholarship committees are looking for resilient students. And like why, <laughs> why I'm rolling my students... eyes so hard
2: over yeah. here yes. yes. as you're talking. Uh, I'm just like, like what?
3: <laughs> I um okay. <laughs> Sorry we're interrupting
2: you here. Oh no, yeah. do well, it well, stream. Dream. Under-
3: I know that like you have Um, you and I have had conversations about your issues with that word resiliency. Can you unpack that? Like the, the, cause I think that even the way that you say it, when you're talking about it, it's loaded, right? Can you unpack what is, what is the challenge that you have with that word? So I think that, well, of course, all people experience different hardships
1: throughout their lives and it's very important to learn coping skills and how you bounce back from something. Right. But yeah we really put this term resiliency or being resilient up on a pedestal and then we have to ask ourselves like but who do we keep asking to be resilient or who who is experiencing trauma and whose experiences are we saying oh but they're so resilient but all these <laughs> this systemic racism or these things they face they should have had to face in the first place yep yeah so that's that's something I'm really struggling with because, yeah, resiliency is important, but who is expected to be resilient? Mm-hmm. And yeah. we act like we're giving them a gift. And resilience, apparently, of labeling. Yes, we gave you these hardships, you overcame them, now we're <laughs> celebrating you. These students didn't have the hardships, they're not as resilient, right? Like, wait, what? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's right up there with the um, the word grit, which a few years ago was like, I don't know, not a few years ago, like eight years ago, right? Everyone was throwing that around, but really for poor kids and really for kids of color. And really, yeah, I really love how you just said that it's tied to the trauma that society has put upon them and given to them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would throw two things. Oh, sorry. oh, go ahead, Katie, go ahead. Just that also, like, I didn't wake up one morning and was like, yes, all of the insight about resiliency. Like, yeah. it's been being in uncomfortable situations or doing the reading, like, Ijeoma Luo reading mm-hmm. So You Want to Talk About Race, like, it really highlighted that for me, or through a really not okay selection process for a leadership award, having a student come up afterward and just talking about like, Hey, that felt really gross. And here's why. Mm-hmm. And she was really shaken up by it. And then the flip side was having another conversation with a student of color. Um, after that, and then, cause I was shaken. I was like, Oh my gosh, what does this mean? What do we do? This is you highlighted these things for me. And also another student who was like, it wasn't a big deal. Cause I walked in the room. I knew the award wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. And that's also super disappointing. Um, But these are just time and time again, experiences where I have learned about resiliency and it has Mm -hmm. not always been pretty.
3: Yeah, I I, guess as you're Mm -hmm. saying that, I think of when I worked in the nonprofit sector um, in these youth development nonprofits and all of like, just thinking about like the auctions, right? Where you invite very wealthy people in the community, to come and have a very bougie night of booze and really nice food and all these nice things to auction off and these trips to tropical places. And then you bring up, you know, the, the kids that use the services, right. Like that come to your organization and they stand up there and they tell their story, which are powerful stories. Yeah. Um, but they stand up there, and essentially, it's for the entertainment of these predominantly white people, rich white people, to then give more money, right? And like it's it's calculated of when you bring up the kids, when yeah. they the story, you do it yeah, right before that. the live auction, of course, and then right. immediately after the story. And like, cause also it's like, there's multiple, like I, there was some where it's multiple kids and then you have the most Mm -hmm. powerful and I'm using quotes, the most powerful.
2: Which usually is the most like awful traumatic.
3: Most awful traumatic story. Yeah. And you do that before the biggest ticket item. And it's, it's, it is one re-traumatizing for these students, but two teaching these students or these students teaching these kids of color that that's, that is how, that is an appropriate way for their stories and their experience to be consumed by wealthy white people. Yeah. And it's problematic on so many levels. Yeah. And that makes me think of like, how can we
1: be, how can all folks be more familiar with the day-to-day lives of a whole bunch of different students or what the lay of the land right. is for different schools without okay. saving it for this one time of year gala? Mm. Yeah. Yep.
3: Yeah.
2: Well, cause as you're talking, like, and I think about events we've been to or like pushed kids to, to end because of that or whatever. Right. Like, I also feel the p- part of the problem is like, that's the system we're in. And so if we want to fund programs, then we're caught in this thing of having to do that as well. And I, I don't know how to reconcile that because part of me is like, well, screw the system. I'm going to manipulate it and use it back to get the money I need from you rich people. And this is like making you feel better about your life. But it doesn't matter because I, we still need the funds. And we can't find them anywhere else. So I don't know how to reconcile <laughs> that part of it yeah. with. And I'm laughing because I just I'm like, Ugh, I don't know how to reconcile that part of it with everything I'm hearing you both saying, which I can com- I completely agree. And like you said, the re-traumatizing of it. I mean, it's part of it. I don't know. Is, is part of it. The power is part of it. A student's choice. Right. Like t- mm-hmm. to choose to tell their story in the way that they want to tell it for the purpose they want to. I don't know. I don't know how to fix, not fix, because I'm not trying to fix it, but I don't know how to, what would change that, I guess, from from being exploitive. Is there a way to, I don't know.
1: Right. I've been thinking about that with student choice too. In this context, I, you know, I'm so glad you brought up this auction dinner, this gala example, because it's so real. And I've also been on the end of like, oh, wow, these stories or like wanting to work with students on their public mm-hmm. speaking skills to be mm-hmm. able to tell the stories. Mm-hmm. And as much as it's then I'm like, oh, wrong, wrong, wrong. I do think of like and there's all this money and all these rich people and they just want to give it away. How do we get their money? Um, so yeah. Maybe, yeah. yeah. maybe a lot of it lies in student choice in the real talk. Like when students opt into something like that, that they like are able to like better, I mean, they do understand it, but like talking to them and just owning like these different dynamics, especially if they're older students, I would say. Um, And same with some of these scholarships or some of the recognition programs at universities, like as much as it does feel like some, you know, like, oh, are we exploiting their stories? Some students like opt in and they know exactly what they're doing. They're just like, I just want that money.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like you said, the power of public speaking and it's, it's also unfair if some kids have access to those kinds of not conditioning is not the right word like training, coaching, right? So why more more people can benefit from that kind of help anyway, in that support, but maybe not necessarily. I guess part of the issue is the context for which they're using it for in this case, rather than um, something else that they want to to use it for.
3: Yeah, I because I I think a lot about this right as a teacher in a high school classroom of I think part of my job is to teach um is to teach my students how to play the game right like right. they didn't make the yep. rules yep and, and being really explicit about that right I, I wrote my in grad my graduate program I wrote my thesis paper on how this like quote-unquote not teaching to the test is rooted in privilege and white supremacy because a white student will go through school and implicitly be taught how to take these exams and take these tests Mm -hmm. because they were built for them, right? So the test was built for them so that they are, they're just inherently going to be able to take that test and be more successful because it was made for them versus students of color who that test was not built for them. You have to explicitly teach to that exam. You have to explicitly teach the skills required to be successful in those assessments and those exams and those standardized tests because they weren't built for them right and so being explicit in teaching your students of color how to navigate these white systems so that they can find success in them because good bad or ugly that's the system that yes. we're working in but also I'm also pulled to well I don't want that to be the system that right
2: we're in. yeah I don't
3: right. want I don't want yeah. to create another cog in the system I don't want to perpetuate the system that hurts students of color right and I, I always, like, go back to this story that I learned in my undergraduate class, um, and it's, <laughs> it's, like, my professor told us, so imagine you're in a village on a river, living in a village, and all of a sudden you notice, like, there's just these babies floating down the river one day like dying like they're and like babies after babies and you find out there's an ogre up river throwing babies
2: what, what is this story <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, like, just, like, I'm sorry i'm
3: just by the ogre
2: tossing babies so, <laughs>
3: so it's like the symptom of the problem are that babies are dying in the river but the actual problem is the ogre. So what do you do? do? you go kill the ogre and say, okay, so these babies are just going to die. Like there's going to be some babies that just die. We're going to go kill the ogre. Or do you go and you go into the river, you try and save as many babies as possible, but you're not going to be able to save all the babies, but really the problem's never getting solved. Or do you send half the village to go kill the ogre and keep half the village continuing to try and save as many babies as possible and hope that eventually the pro- the root of the problem will be solved but also you don't just like leave the babies that are currently like dying in the system
2: right <laughs> like, this is reminds me of one of those things you give students in class you're like teamwork what are you gonna do right. to solve this problem <laughs> story but problem
3: So the, the <laughs> story was based like was trying to explain at the time um direct service versus indirect service mm-hmm. right so that there are people that work with their clients directly with their clients existing in the systems of oppression. Right. And there are case managers and there are like people that are directly with them. And those people are important. Right. Mm -hmm. But there are also people that do not work directly with clients and they are working to solve systems and solve structural issues and trying to solve the root of the problem. And those people are also important. And like Mm -hmm. this conversation we're having is just making me think of that where it's Mm -hmm. like, you know uh, yeah just there's the problem right like these students are existing in this system but also we don't want them to
2: exist in this system yeah yeah. Yes. and I'm gonna call this episode Kill the Ogre I think I've decided that that's gonna be the title <laughs> of this particular episode <laughs> wow that was let's that take was a quick great b- <laughs> let's take a quick break and then l- let's talk about
0: killing ogres more when yeah. back hello This is producer Doug Mackey of Channel 253. The worst earthquake I've been in was the 2001 Nisqually quake. What I remember most about that day was watching the building shake, feeling the ground beneath me move, and watching everyone around me diving for cover. I'll never forget that experience. But it's been almost 20 years since then, and we all need to build muscle memory so that in the next earthquake we don't panic and run out the door or something and get hit by falling debris. So. Do it for real with the Great Washington ShakeOut on October 15th at 10.15 a.m. Plan ahead. Will your drill be at home, work, or elsewhere? Wherever you are, everyone in the state is encouraged to take a minute to drop, cover, and hold on, just like you would in a real earthquake. Again, the ShakeOut is scheduled for 10.15 a.m. on October 15th. Got that? 10.15 on 10.15. Easy to remember. You can learn more and get earthquake preparedness tips at slash Washington. Thank you to the great Washington Shakeout for sponsoring this episode of Channel 253.
2: So, um, back to ogre killing. There's so many applications, Megan, for this story. Um, there are. So, thank you for sharing that with us. I'm going to i'm gonna sit with that because i don't know um no i don't know what to do with it. i
3: brought it home <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: yeah i think you're right it's a both and and I, I the older i get maybe it's i don't know am i less radical now that i get i'm getting older but I, i'm more in the like both and i think with a lot of things it's like yes this and this other thing and how do i hold both of those things as truths experiences and then how do i like I don't know in many ways like fight those systems and and try to Mm -hmm. shake them up or restructure them or whatever it may be
3: or how do you empower the younger generations that you're Mm -hmm. working to? like I think that that's what I'm realizing as I get older is that Mm -hmm. um maybe my role is teaching the younger generations how to change change the system and like shake it up and maybe that's where I kind of see myself kind of fitting is like teaching them, okay, this is the game. Yeah. These are the rules. What are you going to do about it? Type mm-hmm. of thing.
1: Yeah. I think about that too, Megan, like what, and what kind of tools can we give them? Cause like they're doing the things mm-hmm. regardless, but can we give them better tools?
3: Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And I, um, gosh, I've also been thinking about just is self-advocacy. And so I think like a lot of times in schools, we think we're doing students a favor um, by, and we should be supporting them, but by offering them like too much support or by cutting mm-hmm. corners or by changing, not saying you should never extend a deadline, but changing deadlines or changing X, you're dropping the bar. And a lot of times I don't think that serves students. Mm-hmm. So like, what can we do where they don't need to like give every detail of their lives or share all their trauma, but how can they advocate um and speak up when something's not working for them.
3: Mhm. 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 I um I think that autonomy and that advocacy is key. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that that starts with any we've talked about like you know university's responsibility um but now thinking about like middle school and high school what are their responsibility to prepare these students to go and do that once they leave and go to university, right? Like, how do you teach that? How do you, um, encourage that in your students starting in high school?
2: Mm-hmm. I want to go back to, um, the, the comment about resilience and kind of tie that in a little bit. Like, it's funny that that got brought up today because, um, we had a professional development session this week with our school, and we had a lady from I don't I don't know the West Coast or maybe California, who was talking about resilience and what does that mean during a time when a lot of people have experienced trauma because of COVID, and it's kind of in some regards has been an equalizer for folks. On the other hand, we obviously know that it's com- the impact is compounded with race and class and um, you know ge- geography where people are living and whatnot. Um, but it was interesting because I mean as she kept talking, I kept thinking about, you know, students and like and in the context where we were in was teachers. So I was thinking about like how teachers can identify those qualities and when they do and don't, right? And how we how we help um, how we help students, like you said, see these systems, unpack these systems, and then like fight these systems. But like what is the role of resiliency in that? And not in like a trite, crabby way that
0: we like so
2: that's part of this, right? But actually like No, this is real. And I think part of that is maybe long wanted to say, I wonder if part of it is also teachers modeling it. Um, So, Katie, I think at the beginning you said, like, who's resiliency for. Right. (laughs) And how many like I started to think about the word um, fragility and like how many white teachers um, are not resilient (laughs) in this work and in these conversations. I don't know. It was like four different things I just threw out there. But my brain's kind of going in that direction.
1: Yeah, I love all of those. Things. So I'm sitting with those for a second, like pausing, <laughs> taking pause yeah. during this caffeine rush.
2: I don't know. It was really interesting because I, I was wrestling with like I do love to talk about resilience, but then I think, yeah, it's it often is put on people that have experienced trauma. And then what does that mean for the power dynamic of kids versus adults? Um, and I do appreciate the woman was specifically talking to adults, like being resilient in the midst of like having to teach online and all of these adults who are panicking for a variety of reasons, you know, family life, their own personal things, um, and now being put in, uh, un- you know, teachers like being in control, being um, <laughs> put in places where we have no control.
3: Like an uncomfortable situation. Yeah. 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 Hmm. I think. I, um, I'm constantly trying, like grappling with, with teaching students about the, like, right, teaching students about the system and the game and being as frank as possible with them, without making them feel as though I am assuming things about their lives and their experience.
2: That's true, too. That's a good point.
3: Yeah. Um, and that's a constant like struggle that I have, um, is I, I don't want them to ever think that I think I know something about them before they tell me about it. Mm -hmm. Right. But then how do you create, like, and I think that it's all about creating trusting relationships that are open and honest. Um, and authentic and provide them space to talk to you about what their experiences are um but that's something that I've been really like grappling with is you know wanting to do all the things but also not wanting to assume that all of my students require me to do all the things
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 I think that real talk is important. I love what you're saying about not assuming a student's experience or assuming what they're going to feel. I wonder if some of it in in those authentic relationships and in, especially with high school students, when talking about next steps, any sort of post-secondary plans, if college is what they're considering, like, um, what do those conversations look like? What kind of questions are we asking? And like, so that we're not just pushing college and assuming everyone wants to go to UW. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, not... Um, and not lumping all college experiences together, but maybe, um, questions about like what excites students about college? What, is, what do they, what do they fear about college or what brings them anxiety or like, or if they've gone to visit, like what did they notice and what things came yeah. up for them and kind of exploring those things with them. Because if we paint colleges like this really pristine, um, prestigious, perfect example, of, like what it is in the movies, it's not often what it ends up being, um, for, especially for BIPOC students.
3: Mm-hmm. I think um, one of my, like, favorite stories to tell is when I started teaching at Lincoln. Um, Here's a
2: question, though. Is there an ogre in the story? Because I don't know if I want to listen to it if it's going to just be a boring okay, Lincoln strategy.
3: story. There's not only one <laughs> ogre. There are five. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Okay, yeah. good. At five. Lincoln. Perfect, perfect. No I'm here with you. I'm ready. Five ogres in this story. <laughs> no, but... <laughs> So when I like started teaching at Lincoln, I graduated from Western with my undergraduate. And when I would tell students about that, they're like, oh, Miss Holyoke, that college is white. Like Western is really white. And I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> like, it, is it is really, really white. Right. And I think like students see the world and I think adults don't realize that. Like, yeah. students are aware of overtly white spaces. Yeah. And I think what is interesting is that um, I... So I am a, like, racially ambiguous woman. Like, I am not Like, I'm not fully white. I am a quarter Japanese. And um, I think that my whole life people have, like, just not really been able to place me. But I didn't feel like a person of color or any of that until I went to Western, right? Until I went to university. Um, Because I went to um, a really diverse high school where I was a white girl at my high school, right? Like, I wasn't necessarily seen as a person of color. And then I went to UW, or not UW, I went to Western, and it was like, oh, like, it was novel, and like, I was, people didn't know how to place me. Um, And it just... It's because it was an overtly white space, right? And I think that we as adults have to acknowledge that our students are keyed into that as well, Mm -hmm. right? Students, kids know, kids can feel it. And so how do you begin to have those conversations and discussions with them about that fact? And like the realities of, the type of campus they're going to choose and what that experience might look like yes. and the challenges that they might face with that and being mm-hmm. honest and real with them about it. God. That reminds me of that
2: um, Zora Neale Hurston quote. I'm, I'm often drawn back to that quote, but um, I feel most colored when I'm thrown against a sharp white background. Um, yes. Yes. It's yeah. just.
3: Yeah. I Like, oh, that, yes. Like I the summer after my freshman year in college, I unfortunately made the young, stupid decision to live in at a frat on UW. Oh. <laughs> it was listen, it was real cheap. It was like three shame. $300. Where's the shame bill? Where's that shame? Three hundred dollars for the entire summer and hundred and fifty good though. A hundred and fifty dollars of that was a deposit. So a hundred and fifty dollars for the entire summer. And I was As I someone who know, loves a good
2: bargain. I do appreciate that. Not it gonna wasn't lie. Worth
3: it. It, like, I want everybody of our listeners, to know it wasn't worth it. Don't <laughs> oh, do it. I would have paid money to not do yeah. it. But I, if that, that experience, like, was even, um, it was an even wider, like you said, that wider backdrop. And it was the first time in my life that I experienced overt racism. Hmm. And it was this wild, it's a wild experience because a lot of the racism that I experienced that they thought was me, wasn't me. Like it wasn't even my race or ethnicity. Yeah. Like that they were projecting onto me, but it still was like this really bizarre. I felt like I was in the upside down. Like it was Mm -hmm. just this bizarro experience that, and it was like, once again, at a university. And so I can't even imagine, I can't, I cannot even imagine um, what the day in and day out experience of BIPOC students on these universities is like, that the universities can put all of these programs into place that help, but like, how do you shift the community and the culture on your campus, right? Like, how does that, how does that happen? And I like, that's a, like, I mean, maybe a rhetorical question, but like, I've thought a lot about that as well as like,
1: mm-hmm.
3: it's, it's so much bigger than I think people realize on a college. campus. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Megan, that makes me think of in my fig when I was in my first year of college and I was like the only non-white person. And I was like, wait, I'm supposed to speak on behalf of all things Asian. <laughs> <laughs> like. Yes, I'm Korean. I've grown up steeped in whiteness. You don't want me to speak up for all Asians. What is this? I'm not it. (laughs) I'm not it. But I think that goes back to some of the original questions around not only what is it like, but what is the harm or the damage in Mm -hmm. not having a more diverse student population and those expectations that are put on students to
3: represent all things Black, all things Latinx. Like, what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And having staff and faculty that are aware, right? Like what we talked about at the like beginning of the episode is like how aware is the faculty, how well-trained is the faculty to not require the one student of color in their class to speak, speak on behalf of all BIPOC students. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is back to the
2: ogre. So you need like half the people catching babies and half killing the ogre. Right. So like, that's what makes me think about on campus. Like we can't, fire all these people because of tenure we can't do there's just a lot of stuff that's really tough to like it's a long game of change right um but also so you have to i think that's where that you have to have trainings you have to have hard conversations you have to um i guess respond to civil unrest and force yourself to face these things um that a lot of people weren't facing prior to the last six months right um apparently we need a pandemic in some cases but meanwhile we want actual real change that changes the infrastructure of the whole thing. Katie, is there anything else um, we haven't touched on that? You were thinking you want to throw out there in terms of this, this conversation or any, any of the things we talked about to leave listeners with?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but I think we covered (laughs) things like a lot more too. Like I didn't know where this would go and now I'm thinking about auctions. I'm thinking about ogres (laughs) <laughs> and i'm thinking about conversations around resilience starting in middle school and what looks like um with the mm. other so thank you for that
2: yeah that's a good that's a good middle school okay that's a whole yeah we could talk forever yeah. um well, we have two final segments we'll just hit them real fast one is called champagne and real pain
0: champagne for my real friends real pain for my sham friends And in
2: this segment, we raise a glass to um, some folks that are doing the work, or it could be related to this topic or something completely different. And mine's super simple. I just want to raise a glass to the Biden-Harris ticket. And I really don't care what anyone's feelings are listening um, to this show about the two of them. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, I do care, but I don't care at the same time. I just am, I'm trying to be a little bit hopeful, even though my name is Hope, but even though I don't always feel hope around the situation, I'm at least glad that they're around and that there's something else Going on um, to kind of counter all the other crap. So, <laughs> for what it's worth, there's a little champagne um, that I'm going to raise. You all don't have to raise that if you don't want to. Uh,
3: other people, champagne. Um. So I am. So my champagne raising a glass is along the same lines as you, but honestly. The um, the lifelong Republicans that came out and spoke at the Democratic National Convention in support of the Biden-Harris ticket, um, I want to raise a glass to, to them and to the Republicans that are coming forward and supporting the Biden-Harris ticket. I think that that's what we need right now. I think that we need people across the aisle to be honest about the uh, the danger of the trump administration and be able to swallow like the pride and ego and just kind of be honest about it right and and not have party loyalty in this moment um so
2: shout out lincoln project shout out the yes. lincoln project <laughs>
3: yes oh my gosh and all the
2: never all trumpers up there in that the streets
3: it's wild <laughs> it's like i think one of the recent like tweets from them was "Um, we'll go low. So you don't have to. (laughs) Ah, It's so good.
1: Ah. Uh, Katie,
2: Katie, do you have a champagne at all? Anybody you want to figuratively raise
1: a glass to? Yes. I want to raise a glass to orientation leaders on Mm. college campuses. Mm -hmm. You know, every student at every academic year is having their own trip with COVID, but I'm really thinking about college students who are not only facing uncertainty and navigating their own feelings but supporting first year college students and still showing up with excitement and positivity around their college. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. That's good. That's good. All right. Real pain,
2: real pain going out to who?
3: <laughs> um, so I spent some time um, in a more rural area over the weekend.
0: Oh
1: no.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and and The lack of care for, um, I mean, really many of the things that I deeply care about, but really like the face masks and um, just not believing science and not, and not listening to science and the difficult position that puts business um, owners in, in those areas and not fully understanding the difficult position that business owners are then in when you refuse to follow the law, right? And blaming business owners when it's not the business owners, y'all. It is the law that they have to follow in order to keep their business license. Yes.
2: Fundo P, as the kids say, um, I will build off of that. And I just think this is the time, you know, since it's the time of year where schools are opening and then closing and then reopening and then setting out dates to open again and whatever. Um, all the people that are just kind of ignoring, not kind of, like straight up, like they don't know how to, since they can't fix it or prepare schools effectively, they're just like, we're going to do this disastrous thing and pretend science and health doesn't matter. And everyone's just going to go free for all or whatever. Um, so shame on those people who... Um, maybe ignored some of the concerns along the way to make plans that would have been safe for kids and teachers all the way K-12 universities all across the country.
1: Yeah. Gosh, there's a lot of, a a lot of real going on right now.
2: (laughs) Um, Golly. And it was kind of a painful segment actually.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, I feel like we should have done champagne afterward, but (laughs) no, for I'd say for real pain, I think just again, in the name of COVID and You know, rituals and traditions that are happening aren't happening, but the ones that are happening online. So I realized Mm -hmm. after this weekend, I have um, watched both a live stream of a funeral and a live stream of a wedding. Those are two very different experiences and like just rituals that have been flipped and that we are living on a screen and it that's it's life and it's painful, but it's happening and we're making do with what we got.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. All right. Uh, Megan, final segment.
3: Oh, do your fudging homework.
2: Interchangeable. White
3: ladies.
2: Perfect. Yeah. So what homework do y'all have for our listeners?
1: Great. So um, I have a student who I taught when she was in high school, and then I ran into her again at the university. So, you know, she started... High school, um, when Trump was elected, she graduated during a global pandemic. And mm. on the side, you know, she just started a podcast with some friends mm. and it's called it Disturbing Your Peace. So okay. I'd highly recommend this podcast. And one of the episodes, which I'm actually not finished with yet because I just found it, is around being a first-gen student. And cool. so talking about the experience um, at a, a predominantly white institution, PWI, I think that would be great homework.
2: Perfect. Wow. Awesome. I do have a podcast actually that I'm <laughs> gonna recommend. Um I just finished binging a podcast called Chasing Justice um and it's by two women of color who are non-black um and so it's, and it is a christian leaning podcast so i will put that out there for people who aren't interested in that stuff but if you are i highly recommend chasing justice really talk about the intersectional things um with class and race and gender and it's really interesting hearing them talk about it um and then also one of the primary podcasters um kathy kang uh had a has a book called raise your voice why we stay silent and how to speak up and it's really really good as well i've been reading that Megan, got some more homework.
3: Uh, what? Got some more homework. Homework uh, on homework. homework. You got a- I thought You said something about an ogre, and I was like, "Listen." <laughs> <laughs> I think that we are leaving this podcast looking for all of the ogres to kill. Probably. Uh, probably. So mine is not a podcast. Shaking it up a little bit. <laughs> My homework is: I want everybody to find where their ballot drop boxes are. Look it up. Hey. Now. Um, yep. I want everybody to go online and if you can request your ballot early, please go do that. And then, um, please go drop off your ballot in a drop box. Yes. Um, and then while you're at it, you know, just go ahead and go buy, um, a book of stamps, um, Seriously. and hate yourself on what's going on with the post office, uh, the news stream came out yesterday with a story that said that 40% of the letter sorting machines in Pierce County have been dismantled and taken apart. Um, 40% of the letter organizing machines. Um, and it's, there's, you know, there's images of mailboxes being removed all over the country, predominantly in Oregon and Portland right now. Um, you know, there's a lot of theories as to why Portland is being targeted mm-hmm. <laughs> or these mailbox mailboxes being removed, but anyways, so just, just educate yourself, vote early, drop it off in a drop box and then go and, um, buy stamps. There
2: we go. Lots of homework there for, for listeners. Uh, Katie, thanks again for coming on the show. We really appreciate you taking your time and energy out of your day. You could be doing a billion other things. So, um, yeah. thank you for that.
1: Thanks for having me. I so appreciate it. Bye. Bye.
0: Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you.
3: Do you save the de- drowning babies, or do you go kill the ogre? Well,
0: the Democrats stay you- downriver so they can eat the babies.
3: Hey!
2: You put that at the end of the episode for the bloopers right now.
0: The Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is part of the Channel Two Five Three Network. Check out our other shows: Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flanders B Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel Two
3: Five Three.